Uh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And it's been a couple weeks, but we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes today. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, uh, verses 12 through 20. It's found for you in the ESV translation on page 10. If you want to use your smartphone, the ESV app is excellent. I highly recommend it. Or if you want to use a traditional book Bible thing, if you look in front of you, there should be a dark blue Bible, and you're welcome to take that and turn to page 523. And if you don't have one at home, please take that Bible home with you. It's our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So as you're turning there, I want to start out with a statement that many people in church world, many Christians have made. I know God loves me, but, and then we fill in our struggle, our foible, our habitual failure, our shame. It's common. It's not just you. We say it out loud to trusted friends, and we say it inside, silently, a lot. You see, we struggle to actually believe the gospel that we know. A few weeks ago, if you remember, I introduced us to what I called the inner Puritan, uh, that voice in our head who calls us to work harder, do more, be worthy of what God has done. Never rest in his approval, that's superficiality. Make sure you're always a little on edge because God could get you at any moment. You gotta make sure you're walking right, living right. Our Puritan never rests in God's approval. He's skeptical of the command to have joy. Some people call this voice the inner critic. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson calls him the shame attendant. This part of Ecclesiastes, we could call him or her the joy thief because this is a book about joy in a frustrating life. The pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes writing as Solomon, it may be Solomon himself, the text doesn't actually say, but he's definitely you know, kind of channeling Solomon either way if it's not Solomon himself. In the context of Ecclesiastes, he has looked forward to joy coming, hopeful that one day, someday, God's going to end the frustration under the sun. But we who know the gospel, we, unlike the writer of Ecclesiastes, we can look back in time and we can see that God did that in the work of Jesus. And so that in him, we can live in this joy right now. But so often, at least for me, and I bet I'm not alone, I don't live in that joy because my heart has not really been captured by the truth my mind knows. The main reason is my inner Puritan, my inner critic, that joy thief robs the gospel of the beauty my heart craves. And although my mind understands the gospel, my heart is not engaged. So I don't live in joy because that foolish voice in my head. And today's passage, when we get to it, lays bare how destructive and utterly stupid that voice really is. Well, it's been a while, so where have we been in Ecclesiastes before we jump into this passage? So Ecclesiastes is about wisdom. Specifically, he's in this section since the beginning of chapter 9. It's been about how wisdom rests in God's approval. That's why I included chapter 9, verse 7 there. It kind of starts this whole section with this command to go and have joy in life. 
So resting in God's approval is the definition of wisdom for this part of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon tasted God's grace. He was given wisdom, and that wisdom brought him success. But as we have seen, he too, like us, struggled in a frustrating world under the sun. He struggled to appropriate God's grace into his life, and so he tried to see if other paths would work, and so he engaged in an earnest attempt in the first several uh, chapters of Ecclesiastes. He tried uh, sensual indulgence. He tried materialism. He tried self-denial. He tried sensuality. He tried asceticism. He tried all these things, and none of them healed his heart. Instead, he says they're all vanity. We would say today in our vernacular, frustrating And now he writes as one in a relationship with God to those who are in a relationship with God who have access to God's grace. He writes to help us avoid foolishness, which he defines as the denial of God's grace. And so for this point in Ecclesiastes, here's our anchor before we jump into this passage. The wise embrace grace. The fool denies grace. And it's on that principle that he then starts here in chapter 10. As if you would, would you please look with me on page 10 or in your own sources there? Ecclesiastes chapter 10, starting in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks." Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging, Lord, that some passages are more difficult to understand than others. And so, Lord, we ask that even now you would send your Spirit and that through Him you would open this passage to us and we would see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ even in these words. We pray, Lord, that you would change us by an encounter with your truth and that we would rest in your joy. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so whenever we come to the Old Testament as Christians, one of the things we have to remember is there's always this interplay in the text between what's happening then, historical realities that we need to understand so we can apply that to ourselves today. And so there's always this interplay between the historical application and what applies to us today. So what's happening then, what happens now is kind of always going back and forth. On the surface, if you look at just the back then, man, this is like a great self-help book right here. This is like how to win friends and influence people for church world. This is, you know, how to seven steps to achieve wisdom and success. We could do all of that. But at the same time, he's also going after deeper issues of the heart. 
helping those of us who, who, who affirm the gospel with our minds to grasp the beauty of it with our heart and then live in the promised joy that he has promised over and over again, even in a frustrating world under the sun. And that gives us our theme for today. We're going to kind of try to distill this out of this text today. It's this, that the wise unleashes grace while the fool tries to muzzle it. Again, the wise just unleashes grace, but the fool tries to muzzle grace. So we're going to jump right in verses 12 through 15 with you talk too much. And I want to start out with a very poor English but accurate Hebrew, really rigid, rough translation of verse 12. Here's how we could do it very uh, roughly. It says this, the speaking of the wise is grace. The lips of the stupid eat himself. Now, I know I don't let my kids use that word either. I know. But that's the most accurate way to really grab what this Hebrew language is saying right here. That the wise speaks grace. The fool, the stupid, denies grace, and that denial destroys them. They destroy themselves. They literally eat themselves in that denial. You see, you and I, we hear the amazing grace of chapter 9, verse 7, and chapter 9, verse 9. They're, they're there for you on page 10, where resting in God's approval opens up a whole world of joy to you, and God comes in the imperative, the same thou shalt that had the Ten Commandments. Here's another thou shalt. Thou shalt enjoy life. It's right there. Go out and enjoy the pleasures of life. And before we even get the first taste of joy, our inner fool, the grace denier, comes and speaks destruction to us. Verse 13 tells us that the first words of this voice are foolishness, stupidity, and the result is madness. Now we hear that word and we immediately think psychological madness, people like lost their mind. That's not what an ancient Near Eastern person would hear. They would hear more along the lines of, remember Forrest Gump? Okay. Remember those two famous sayings he had? One had to do with chocolate. The other one had to do with, remember this one? Stupid is as stupid does, right? Remember that one? And we all laugh. We have no idea what that means. Well, that's madness here. That's the definition of madness. To an ancient Near Eastern person, foolishness in the heart meant that when life under the sun squeezes you, your inner stupidity comes out in chaos, in disorder. And they looked at that whole situation and said, that's madness. Foolish is as foolish does, and that's mad. And note in verse 7, it's not just madness, it's evil madness. Solomon himself has heard that inner foolishness. He's heard that inner Puritan, that grace denier too. He's heard that voice come and say no to God's command for joy. And so Solomon calls it what it is when you deny God's grace. It's evil. It's evil because it's self-destructive for us to affirm with our minds the truth of the gospel, but deny its beauty in our heart. I know God loves me and offers me joy, but that's not for me because of this habitual sin. I, can't, I just can't break. You are looking to yourself to fix your sin. Repent and place your sin on Jesus who paid for it at the cross and you'll have joy. I know God loves me and offers me joy, but I can't be happy because I'm just such a bad Christian. I'm not, I'm not like those people. That's evil madness because you're looking at your performance instead of resting in God's promised approval. 
Repent and look to the approval of Jesus given to you by God and trust him when he says, in my approval, enjoy your joy. You see, the foolish grace denier in our head attacks every gift God gives for our joy. And it utters the madness that we should feel guilty for enjoying those gifts. How often do you find yourself just really enjoying the pleasantness of life? What's it take? For me, it's about 36 seconds. For you, maybe it's 36 minutes. All of a sudden, you shouldn't be so happy. What about sin? What about evil? What about this, whatever it is? It steals that joy, doesn't it? See, verse 14 tells us that foolish voice isn't just evil, it's a liar who just makes stuff up, heaping on us lie after lie, anything to block joy in our life. Remember, uh, if you know the Christian story, remember when Jesus went out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan at the very beginning of his ministry, three temptations came to him, and one of them was Satan came to Jesus and said, worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the, of the earth. There's a problem with that. In Psalm 2, God had already promised the kingdoms of the world to his son as a coronation gift. God already had him in waiting. He was just waiting to give him to his son. And here comes Satan whispering to the human Jesus, don't believe that. No, do this. Take this shortcut. Worship me and I'll give him to you. He's offering him something he didn't have to give. He's lying to him. You know why Satan did that? Because he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And so too, his little grace-denying voice in our heads lies to us. Just make stuff up, verse 14 says. He talks about the future, but no one can know the future, but this person's an expert on the future. Whatever it takes to stop our hearts from resting in the joy of the gospel, from resting in the amazing truth that Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived. See, here's where it gets complicated and nuanced. Our inner Puritan is right when he says, you are not perfect and holy and God demands it, so you shouldn't feel good about yourself. And that's where he's wrong because in the gospel, God says, you're not perfect and you're not holy and I'm not gonna compromise my standards. So I'll send my son who will fulfill all righteousness. Jesus will do the righteousness I require. He will be the holiness that I require and I will take that holiness and that righteousness and when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, I'll dump it on you and I will call you righteous. To use the big theological word, that's what justification means. But wait, there's more. If you order in the next five minutes, you also get your sins forgiven. It's not just that Jesus gives you all this righteousness that God says, your Puritan is right. You're really bad at this thing called obedience. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take all your very accomplished bad. I'm gonna take all of that accomplishment. You've done a really good job on this bad. And I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna dump that on Jesus and I'm gonna kill him for it because I hate it. But you have his righteousness now and I'm gonna call you son I'm gonna call you daughter and you're mine and that's the gospel. And what happens is our inner Puritan loves to talk about our sin and never likes to talk about the righteousness of Christ so it keeps us in shame, keeps us in guilt, always trying to feel worthy when we're not worthy. That's why it's called grace. You give it to unworthy people. If you give it to worthy people, that's called works. You earned it, right? Your paycheck at work isn't grace, it's works. madness 
to know this trivia of the gospel, but to not live it, to not feel it. It's evil madness. And so Solomon comes in in verse 15. He's trying to just to nail this foolish voice, to nail this mad, evil life. Look with me at verse 15. Here's what he says. It says, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want to fast forward you a thousand years in the future. I want you to grab a non-native English speaker, and I want you to have them define beating around the bush. How's that going to go for you? Yeah, it's a figure of speech, right? Which means you say what you don't actually mean because it means what you don't actually say. Right? So too, this does not know his way to the city is a figure of speech. Very similar to our kind of, um, what would we say here? Uh, that person can't walk and chew gum at the same time. It indicates this person just isn't too bright. Or as a crass Hebrew would say it, they're stupid. Now again, I know I don't like that word either, but that word in our English language carries the emotional freight of the Hebrew text here. And as always remember, we don't critique scripture based on our sensitivities. That's cancel culture. Scripture critiques our sensitivities, right? with the truth. So anyway, if stupid bothers you, I'm sorry. It's the best way to, to translate this. Verse 15 says, the foolish grace denier is stupid. The foolishness is stupidity. It's the reason for their weariness because grace deniers are exhausted by life. Did you catch that? Do we, do we ask? Do we dare? If we find ourselves worn out by life, Could it be that we're listening to the foolish voice instead of the voice of grace? Here's a test. Look at me at the bottom of your page, page 10, chapter 9, verse 9. I want to remind you of this command in Scripture. Enjoy life. Thou shalt enjoy life, we could translate, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Solomon points to the joys of marriage and all the joys of marriage to teach that all the pleasures God gives here and now are ours to enjoy in a hard life. Notice he calls it a hard life of toil. He says, I've given you things to enjoy them right now, so go enjoy them. It's a command. See, the wise rest in God's approval, and so they enjoy the gifts of God here and now. The stupid don't enjoy those gifts, and they're exhausted because of it. Oh, with all the authority of God's word, I can say to you, dear Christian, if you live in exhaustion in your heart instead of joy, it's because you're listening to the stupid voice, the grace denier, rather than the wise voice of grace. And so to quote the great Shania Twain, (laughs) don't be stupid. You know I love you, is what God says to us. Or I can say it more religiously. Repent and believe the gospel. Rest in God's approval of you. And in Jesus, believe he approves of you. And enjoy God's joy. Because the wise unleashes grace. But the fool tries to muzzle it. And the fool does that because the stupid voice makes us doubt God's love. And this pastor philosopher then addresses that next, starting in verse 16. Don't be stupid. You know I love you. 
So whenever you see the word woe in the Bible, W-O-E, Old Testament, and Jesus used it in the New Testament, whenever you see that, someone with God's authority is calling out foolishness, stupidity, sin, and they're calling it out and saying, this is judgment. They're not saying you're going to be judged. They're saying you are being judged. So verse 16 comes and tells us not foolish leaders will bring judgment. No. Verse 16 says, having foolish leaders, present tense, is judgment. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse uh, 16 and 17 on page 11 there. Having fools in charge means God is judging the land. Having the wise in charge means God is blessing the land. So again, to really get into this text, we have to understand there's, a, there's always this interplay in the Old Testament historical books and wisdom books between what's happening then in history and how it's now applied to us through Christ. So Solomon is writing to ancient Israel but there's an application of this to Christians today as well. Back then, if you remember, when Solomon was inaugurated or coronated as king, he, he, he prayed to the Lord. He called himself at that time a child. The same word here in verse 16. So this could be autobiographical. In other words, just like you, when you look back at those very first early days of your career, Solomon could be going, oh man, I had no business being king. I didn't know anything. Or it could be talking about just foolish kings in general. But the point is this. Verse 16 looks at having unqualified foolish leaders. Verse 17 looks at having qualified wise leaders. And how one's judgment and how one is a blessing. And here's the application question for us Christians. Which voice is now leading our life? Who's our leader? Is it the fool? The voice of grace denial? Or is it the wise, the voice of grace? Do we yield to that grace-denying inner critic? Or do we stand with the voice of grace in the Scriptures? See, to help us get this, what he does, if you'll notice in verse 16 through 19, he uses a back and forth. So verse 16 is foolishness, verse 17 is wisdom, 18 is foolishness, 19 is wisdom. Try to help us understand this. So with that in mind, look what happens. At the end of verse 16, we read that it's a curse when is it a curse? When leaders feast in the morning. And our inner Puritan jumps all over that, doesn't he, in verse 18. See, they're feasting. They're just partying and having fun when there's serious work to do. That idleness, that sloth, it's going to make the house fall in. They need to grow up. These lazy partiers are going to just ruin their life. But verse 17 counters that. It's like, no, not quite. Look with me at the second part of verse 17. It says this says, your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. See, so immediately silences that grace-denying voice. Because our grace-denier inner Puritan does what? Sees that word feasting and gets all over, right? You shouldn't party. You shouldn't feast. You shouldn't have fun. That's bad. You should constantly feel guilty and insecure because of your sin. But verse 17 comes along and says, uh, no, feasting is good. When there's something to celebrate... So you do your feasting at the end of the day when you've accomplished something and so in gratitude and thankfulness and joy you feast what you've done that day. Fools get up in the morning and be like, it's going to be a great day, let's feast about it. It's like, well, you're going to do something first? Nah. It'll all fall into place. That's foolishness. That's what verse 17 is saying. So it's not 
the feast, it's the timing. And I'm, I'm belaboring this because on a cursory reading, you know you do it, your inner Puritan immediately lands on the feasting and, and, enjoy, and ignores that it's about the timing, right? He tells us to be strengthened by our feasting. Then in verse 19, he says, enjoy the gifts of joyful food, drink, and fellowship. All that enjoyment is wisdom. Have bread, have drink. And then just to poke the bear, the foolish voice, verse 19 says, money answers everything. And every Christian in the room stops in shock as our inner Puritan goes full Gordon Ramsay and starts screaming and throwing things, right? Yeah. You know when I'm personally reading scriptures for devotion and stuff and I get to difficult things like this, you know what I do? I do what you do. I skip it and move on. You know? You, you know the problem with you're doing this publicly? You can't skip it and move on. So what do we do with this, right? What, well, Ecclesiastes, if, you'll, if you've been with us for a while, if not, you have to trust us. Ecclesiastes has talked about feasting a lot, Wisdom, it seems, according to Ecclesiastes, works best with food, drink, and friends. And so in that context, what's going on here, the simplest, easiest reading of the text is have people over, eat, drink, rejoice, and money allows you to do this. If you're broke and angsty about money, you're a terrible host, right? You don't lavish stuff. You're like, well, you can have a little. It's really expensive. So here, have some, right? We're, if you've got resources, here, have extra. It's grandma's house at Thanksgiving. Have more. See, and here's the thing about it. The voice of wisdom doesn't condemn you when you spend money to feast with friends. There's a deeper principle here, and it's this. Grace comes with resources. The grace denier foolishly refuses those resources, and so they exhaust themselves. Joy, exuberance, happiness is available. Verse 17, the very beginning, the word blessed. You know why we translate it blessed? Because religious people are uncomfortable with the word happy, which is what it means. Happy. And let's just own the reality right now. Almost every one of you in the room kind of cringe just a little bit when I talk about how Jesus wants to make you happy. It sounds so superficial, right? It sounds so, but we're Presbyterians. What about total depravity, right? I know. That's our inner Puritan. Our inner Puritan is like a skeet shooter and God's over there like joy, joy. They're like pull, <laughs> pull, right? But God's word comes and says, God wants you to be happy in his approval, regardless of what your inner Puritan says. Through the work of Jesus, God actually offers you his friendship. When we follow the wise voice of grace, we get to dive into the friendship that God offers us. And so to help us continue in that friendship, God gives us the family of other believers and tells us, hey, have joy feasting with them. In a couple weeks, we're going to start our annual series on our, our values as a church, and our, our current core values are live, grow, thrive, go. And under the idea of live is not only new life in Christ, but it's the joy of fellowship together. And one of the passages that your elders looked at when we tried to discern our values was passages like this where God's like, have joy together in community as a command. And so we want to live that out at Sycamore. And then this passage ends in verse 20 
with a reminder that following the wise voice of grace or following the foolish voice of the grace denier comes down to one thing only, our opinion of God himself, what we really think of him. See, Ecclesiastes instructs us, don't curse the king. Even in your thoughts, even in the privacy of your bedroom, don't curse the king. Okay, let's just think practically. Why? It's not the king's going to know, right? But God will. See, in ancient Israel, the king was a religious position just as much as it was what we would call a political position. They wouldn't really know what that means, but it, you, you know what I'm saying. The, Lord was, the king was called the Lord's anointed. In fact, if you remember, if you know the story of David, David is anointed the king by Samuel long before he's coronated as king. He has this long section where we know as the reader of the, of the, of the history, David's the king, yet this cat named Saul is on the throne and he's trying to kill David. And there's three or four different times, you can look this up, when David has the opportunity to end this problem and kill Saul. Saul is, God has literally put Saul right in his hand. And all those occasions, David refuses and he says, I will not lay hands on the Lord's anointed. Because David says, I love God, I respect God, and therefore I respect the Lord's anointed, even if the man in that position is not worthy, the God who established that position is worthy, I will not go against him. So what this is telling us here is that to curse the king is to curse God. The fool doesn't think much of God, so we'll curse him. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Let's look at your verse 20 on page 11, boys and girls. It says this. When fools make fun of their leaders, they really blame God who put those leaders over them. See, it all comes down to what do we think of God? The question we should ask ourselves is this. Is he a joyful God? A God of grace who just pours out his approval on his people? Or is he the aloof taskmaster who withholds approval until we've proven ourselves worthy and we never feel worthy? See, the wise voice of grace shouts out that God is a God of joyful approval, and the foolish voice of grace refuses that. So let's wrap this up. So Solomon trusted in God's approval. We see that clearly in chapter nine, but he did not know the gospel like we can. He did not know that the basis of that promised approval is the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we can know that. And ultimately this passage then points us to Jesus Christ himself. He is the king. He is the wise voice we want ruling over our life. And the one who in verse 17 can be the king who makes us happy, blessed, and so fulfilling verse 17, Jesus was the son of the ultimate nobility. And in his earthly ministry, there's this really unique thing, I think specifically with verse 17 here in mind, where the religious leaders come up to Jesus and attack him because his disciples don't, don't fast enough. They're too busy feasting. And Jesus says, no, 
It's not the proper time. They should feast now because this is when they should feast. They can fast then when I'm gone, but now is the proper time for feasting. It's kind of weird. It has no context, and I really believe it's part of the Holy Spirit fulfilling verse 17 in our lo- in, before our very eyes in the life of Jesus, that he is this king who has his people feast at the proper time, and he does it for strength and not for drunkenness, which is why he left us with a feast of bread and wine. I know it doesn't seem like a feast, the little thimble things we do, but it's under the imagery of a feast that we take communion for strength. See, the beauty of the gospel is that through the work of Jesus, the same approval that God has for Jesus is available for us. You can have that same approval. When you rest your heart on the beauty of that gospel, the wise voice of grace floods your life with joy. Oh, even now, dear Christian, Repent with me of how much we yield to the voice of the grace denier. And so we live in exhaustion, don't we? Instead, let's embrace the grace of the gospel and have joy. Now, for those of you here who wouldn't call yourself Christians, I know I hope this critique of, of Christians has helped you a little bit to see that you're not alone in your grace-denying thoughts. All of us Christians are riddled with them, and if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I know you're riddled with these grace-denying thoughts. But in Jesus, you're offered the resources to silence that foolish voice. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he will give you those resources and you can have joy. Now embrace Jesus and don't wait. Do it now. Now let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your grace Lord, we thank you for enigmatic passages like this that really help us dig in and get to the nuances of our own unbelief so that we might repent more fully and believe the gospel more robustly. Uh, So I pray, Father, that by your spirit, those of us who know you, who've been united to Jesus by, by faith, Lord, would you give us the strength to cast off this foolish, grace denying inner Puritan? this person in our head, this voice that always reminds us of our shame and our guilt before you. Lord, would you help us to listen and follow the voice of truth and grace that reminds us that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that in his resurrection we can live in your approval. And Father, I pray for those here today who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Would you do your work of salvation even now and call many from death to life that they may believe and confess. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.